This is an Island to Island production. I'm Ollie Walker and you're listening to Ironcast, the show that brings you discussions with craftsmen, celebrities, denim heads, retailers, members of the internal and extended Iron Hut family, and well, sometimes people we just plain like. In this episode, we're talking to hat and leather goods maker Kate Havstad. We talk about making a hat for Shania Twain, farming, and I mispronounced the word regenerative. Regenerative. Regenerative? Regenerate. Never mind. Ironcast is an island to island production in association with High Kick Media, hosted and edited by me, Ollie Walker. You're listening to Ironcast. You're listening to Ironcast. You're listening to Ironcast. And I'm listening to Ironcast on horseback. You heard Ironcast, the podcast from Ironheart. Reporting from the West Coast, you're listening to Ironcast. Evam Adrisara Vachanam Shritavya. You're listening to Ironcast, motherfucker. Enjoy. Yeah, if you hit record, that would be perfect. Okay. There okay. we go. Okay, yeah. Yep. So levels are on. We're recording officially. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> oh my goodness. What a what a palaver. Um for those listening, um sometimes we see, we, we always try and give you the best audio quality and to do that you know we send a mic and we and we ask and in this case we're talking to Kate Havstad in Oregon and we I've asked Kate to set up and we've just had 10 minutes just to set everything up and uh anyway we're here um how are you doing Kate I'm doing great um I'm having my first sips of coffee because I didn't have time to have coffee this morning when I first woke up because I woke up immediately found out that we had a bunch of cattle out (laughs) so um, my husband who is sick right now uh, and I and our two-year-old had to like hop on the quads and in the truck to go um, grab a bunch of cattle that were menacing our neighborhood. No, you're kidding me. So I was like racing the clock, like we have to get the cattle back before 9.50 because I have a podcast. <laughs> that is, that's probably the best story uh, ever. So I, 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 was, I was running late. <laughs> I wish that that wasn't like an often occurrence, but uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I end up chasing animals um, more than I would like to admit. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. So how many, cat- when you say cattle, are you saying like cows or is, it, is that like a catch-all term? Yeah, so we've got, um, we have breeding cows. Um, we have heifers, which are, you know, uh, not yet, you know, going to be first year moms. And then we also have finishing steers, you know, they're all bovine, but it's kind of like three different types of, of, you know, industries within the cattle industry. And then we've got about 150 to 170, um, hogs right now. So, um, they are luckily not out this morning. They're all where they're supposed to be. So it was just all the cattle that were out. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's just amazing. I mean, I, I think we're in for a treat here. One of, the, one of the bits of feedback we get just here and there is, oh, it's quite male-centric, this podcast. There's a lot of guys going on. So I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you for this time for a multitude of reasons. It's, it's lovely to talk to a, a woman. It's lovely to talk to someone who has cows and, and cattle. <laughs> and I'm desperate to hear your story. I, and actually, I'm going to open with my leading question because I'm a, I'm a father now. I'm a, a father of a four and a half month old. And I feel like I barely have time to shower. <laughs> so my, my, my first question to you has to be, how do you, how do you, how do you be a farmer? How do you run a successful hat 
company and how do you run a successful leather business? How, how, does, how do you do that, Kate? Well, I remember four and a half months and we were still completely sleep deprived. <laughs> and so I remember <laughs> where you're at and it gets better. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I think our son started sleeping like pretty solid at eight months and then like I got my sanity back. Um, <laughs> So four months is, is a unique place. Um, well, I'll say that it's not, um, it's not like there are chapters to my work and a lot of my work I've built to be seasonal. And so, um, and I am not out there doing the labor of the farm every day. Like primarily my husband is up and doing most of the feeding chores, um, and, you know, when he can triage a situation without me, I ask him to. Um, but, yeah, I, I would just say that it's, you know, my careers with the farm and with Habstad Hat Company have been 10-year journeys. So there's been a few different chapters to those businesses in which there's just varying levels of intensity of focus on this one for this period of time and this one for this period of time. Um and then the leather company came in, really came in heavy in 2021. So it's just been a couple years of building that. And so it's added a new dynamic to things. So everything is constantly I'm evaluating, you know, what needs prioritization, like what needs a little bit of back burner um, and really what my uh, what my drive and my focus is on in the moment. And, and we can get into where I'm at in this moment, but mm. it's been an evolution. Can't wait to hear more about it. So the, the, the leather company we're talking about is Range Revolution. It's regenerative, uh, re, I can't even say the word, regenerative, no, regenerative. How do you say the word? Regenerative. Regenerative, you, Jesus, I need more coffee. <laughs> regenerative. <laughs> uh, leather production, leather, I mean, a leather purveyor. So it's luxury goods, it's bags, it's, it's luggage. Yeah, yeah, Range Revolution is, is a unique leather goods company because 100% of our leather supply chain um, comes from a traceable and regeneratively sourced leather supply chain. And that is going to sound like an abstraction maybe to a lot of people. What does regenerative even mm. mean? That's a huge question that would probably take a whole podcast. But in <laughs> essence, you know, like um, I'll just say where this the origin story of this was. And I think it paints like why I'm here. So I set out to build a leather luggage piece for Havstead Hat Company in 2020. And I was like, there's really no beautiful, functional, nice hat luggage piece for my people. And so I'll build it. <laughs> but I wanted to source materials in the same way that I really live the rest of my life's ethos by. I wanted to find something from my eco region hopefully from peers of mine in the ranching industry that are, you know, managing their ranches and the landscapes um, in a way that is improving ecological outcomes on land. Ranching gets a really bad reputation. Meat can get a bad reputation. Leather can get a bad reputation as being, you know, extractive or damaging. But uh, if you talk to any thoughtful, experienced rancher, um, they're some of the most conservation-minded people I've ever met who are doing some of the greatest conservation work you'll ever see. So, um, but when I went out and was like, yeah, I'll, for sure I'll find some leathers from my area, that was so naive. Um, it doesn't exist. And what I found out quickly was that all of the hides coming from the cattle of these mid-sized family branches that I know so well, they're all being thrown in the trash. 
And, you know, this is, you know, it just, it's a huge problem for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's not free to throw these things away. It's a cost, um, which is passed on to the producer or the rancher. Um, when these are thrown into a landfill, quite literally, they just sit in landfills and off-gas methane. And then it's just like, this is a beautiful, valuable material. Um, and, and so then I started digging a little further. Okay, well, when I try and source leathers from this tannery that I want to get leathers from, where are they coming from? Nobody really had a good answer for me. And I saw how opaque the supply chain was. And any time I feel like there's... Um, opaqueness like that in a supply chain um, a lot of times it's intentional Mm. and if you dig a bit further a lot of the leather that make up the commodity leather industry come from places like Brazil that are you know perpetuating deforestation so Mm. it was like once I started down this rabbit hole it was like what and then I go a little further I'd be like wait what um (laughs) And it just felt like two adjunct problems that could be solved if somebody was dedicated to solving this sort of misalignment. Mm, mm. It's really interesting. So the, the first, my first thought is when you talk about Brazil and deforestation, that's that, essentially that's the, let's say that's the upshot of being able to supply mid to low level quality leather at, at will. But am I, am I right in saying that good quality regenerative leather it should be hard to find it shouldn't always be readily available would that be fair to say that's a great question i mean well i'll give you some scale and it's kind of like i'll say this too uh, it's less that the quality of the finished leather is going to have to do with the um the practices of the rancher raising that steer or that cow that really comes down to preservation of the hide as soon as it's pulled off the animal, um, how, you know, it's transported and how it's tanned. There's actually a huge supply of what I think are regenerative hides. So in America, these aren't all like regenerative, but in America every year, 5 million cattle hides are thrown into the trash. Oh my goodness. So I think I did some math on that. Not, you know, that's about, you know, 5 million. No, I need to do that math again. I don't want to misquote that square footage, (laughs) but it's a huge square footage of of valuable materials. So yes, will it be more precious, something from regenerative sourcing? Yeah, for sure. But there's still a huge supply there for the industry to dip into. But it's going to take a lot of work. It's taken a lot of work to kind of build these systems to get these back into, you know, a system where I can then get a finished leather that is up to the quality that I need to then create these bags. God, I mean, I mean, just the, just the hours you must have put into sourcing alone. I mean, the mind boggles. Yeah, it, it's where I'm, you know, I'm really passionate about the design side of it. I'm, I'm really passionate about how we as designers and as creatives just find compelling ways to connect people to story. Like whatever that story is, like however it is that the clothes on our body make us feel, how, why do we connect with a certain brand or a brand story And then because of my work in the past 10 years in agriculture, I've been trying to reach people through the food on their plate. And I've been trying to get people to question, how are my choices like either leading to a world that I want or maybe are leading to the type of world that I so desperately don't want? And you can reach people so far through the food on their plate. But I just started to see that in fashion in particular, 
there's a huge disconnection between <laughs> the clothes on our body and us understanding where that comes from. And I don't think most people know this, but at this point, you know, 70% of the textiles that make up our fashion supply chains are petroleum based. So, right, it's been very insidiously woven into our lives and we just don't even see it because it's, they're, you know, very, very nice test textiles that are sporty <laughs> and, you know, water repellent and all these things. But it, it, while that's been happening, um, natural fibers, wool, leather, linen, cotton, they've actually become so devalued that in a lot of places, like in America, the cattle hides are being thrown into the trash. And in the UK, we have a giant just crumbling of the wool industry. There's just there's a huge opportunity, I think, to reconnect the fashion industry to the soil and and to what, um, you know, responsible consumerism can look like. So I don't know if it's if it's I'm even allowed to say this. I don't know if this is I could be done for saying this, but I'm gonna say it, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll find out later. Fuck we'll it. To, um, yeah, fuck it. I have to cut it out. But a brand like Gore-Tex, which is mm. unbelievably popular at the moment, would you say? Are you lumping that in with petroleum-based? Uh, technology uh, products and so on and so forth so i'd have to dig and like be like what is you know what are these composites but most likely most likely um that's diplomatic thank you yeah yeah you know (laughs) what anything that's got that polyester like that is going to be like a like a poly pu that's going to be a petroleum based blend there's a lot of other you know kind of composite names for these materials these days and you know it's not going away I just want, um, there's like, there's so many things I want out of this design project. Like I want to see regenerative ranchers become more profitable because they're not profitable right now. And I, as somebody who lives in a rural area in America, you know, a majority of the land of this place that we love is stewarded by private individuals, right? Like we have a great amount of public land, but a massive amount of the soil in this country is managed by individuals. And I think of these lands, even if they're privately owned, this is our commonwealth. These are our children's futures, right? We need these people who manage these lands to be like doing okay so that they can make good decisions about how they manage the lands they're on. And I'm not naive, there's always going to be greed and there's always going to be extractively minded people. But by and large, people in agriculture want to make the right decisions. They're just often squeezed so hard by the margins in the markets that they have no room for creativity. They have no room to take a little extra step for a conservation project, right? So like, how do we build market opportunities that provide additional returns to these people on work they're already doing, right? It's just a lost opportunity to throw a hide into the trash. Mm. And then I want, you know, I I want there to be a cultural narrative that sort of is course correcting from this misunderstanding that animals are the problem and ranching is the problem because I so firsthand have seen how ecosystems can recover through the strategic use of cattle on landscapes. So you know, can a handbag communicate all of this? Like, that's what I'm trying to do. So uh, we'll see. <laughs> wow. God, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And, and so enlightening to hear you talk about this. So uh, obviously you touched on... The Someone food say that- stupid, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> not, not this guy, I promise you. But, the, um, but you, you were talking about the food on our tables. Now, again, I I know I don't want to get in hot water saying this, but I I, I moved over from the UK uh, to the US about a year ago. 
And I did notice initially, there are a few things that with the food that was kind of affecting me, you know, like I, yeah. I, I couldn't eat bread here. I was just like, I, I don't know what it is, but every time I have something, you know, a loaf of bread that I think is, is decent, I'm, I'm feeling sick. Mm. And, and I'm noticing more and more that I'm having to be a lot more picky with the food I'm eating. And I guess, I mean, I know that there was a guy, God, this was years and years ago. His, he was based in Hawaii. He was an absolute guru of, you know, the right food we should be eating. But he had this pyramid and it was talking about kind of the best diet you could eat. And at the very bottom, he had SAD, SAD, but the standard uh, Amer American yeah. diet, which I was, yeah. I was quite interesting. So <laughs> I don't know if I was kind of subscribing to that initial standard American diet, but when you got into farming, I mean, it probably happened many, many years before that. But w when did you start to change your diet? Or have you always mm. been into the kind of more natural? So I grew up in Western Sonoma County, which is in Northern California in a little town called Occidental. Okay. And it's a really unique place to grow up. So um, the elementary school I went to, we had... Um, like a garden program, which was a part of the curriculum. And we learned how to compost and we had an outdoor kitchen. So we would learn how to, you know, harvest from the garden and then cook something in the outdoor kitchen. So we were seeing the full cycle of things, right? This was a very hippie and progressive kind of school, public school system in, in Northern California. Like Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead and Tom Waits live in that town. So like it's, wow. it's, a, like, it's a really special place, right? So I had that start, but my parents were not into agriculture. Um, then I go off, you know, at the same time, I had two full-time working parents who were both self-employed. So there were a lot of Papa Murphy's pizza dinners and it was in the era where like, it was like TV dinners, right? And it was like low fat, no sugar, like, you know, kind of we're realizing the worst of the diet prescriptions. And so I certainly was exposed to that through just having like really busy parents mm -hmm. and then I go off into college, treated my body horribly in college, just... <laughs> partying and also like, you know, studying really hard. But it was actually later in college that I started working for a touring farm to table organization. And they're called Outstanding in the Field. And they throw these farm dinners all around the world. Wow. And I, I did a little stint running around with them, which was mostly for fun. But I ended up on all these different farms and ranches and I was seeing how all these different people were doing things and that is I think really where the seed was sown that like this is where I feel at home and this work there's something here mm -hmm. but it, I would I would take many other like paths along the way in my like late teens early 20s before I found my way back to the farm and it wasn't until 2014 early 2014 I landed on my now husband's farm and um, honestly, I just thought he was really cute. And um, <laughs> I was learning to become a hat maker. I was apprenticing with my first teacher. And so he and I worked out a trade. Um, and I built him a custom hat. And he gave me a, a CSA membership at his farm, uh, which is a weekly produce box. Um, but he would have volunteer days. And so I would go to those volunteer days and just hang around, honestly, just to get to know him better. And, and that was really when everything really started to change. Like this is, this is a deep purpose that I feel connected to. Um, and I would like to make this my life, you know, um, he, and he was doing things very special. He's, he's a very special person. Um, his whole soul is, is in farming, but I think what attracted me about that farm was like it, it there was a magnetism and it attracted uh, the types of people who I really wanted to be around. And I myself felt the most like myself when I was there 
So, yeah, I really joined forces with him in, in 2014. And this was when Half Set Hacko was, like, really taking off. And I was just so focused on it. It was 100% of, of my life. And I actually had an uh, offer from somebody to, who was offering to build me, like, the workshop of my dreams in Nashville. And ah. I was, like, really thinking about moving to Nashville. But ultimately, it was, like, my husband and the farm that got me to stay. And so he was, that's where he was situated. That's where you met your husband. That was how mm-hmm. it all began. Yeah, yeah. He is the rooted one. I am the one who, like, spins off into space, and then he, like, <laughs> pulls me back to the earth. <laughs> yeah. That's the best kind of relationship, isn't it? You have to appreciate the differences and make them work for the two of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, there's, there's a yin and yang, and yeah. um, I'm a bit of fire, and he, he is a bit of a groundedness, and I think we do need each other's shared energies, so... Um, and we've needed each other to grow our businesses. We've, you know, we've been growing Kassad Family Farms and Havsad Hatco in tandem. Wow. And there's been a lot of changes with both. But, you know, we, we just can't do this together. And then you add in, like, let's, let's start a family. Like, that's the ultimate, like, you know, teamwork. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, could not agree with you more. It's the, it's the kind of something I, that a few people told me. Whatever is said between the hours of 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. are out of the window by the next morning. <laughs> you can say whatever you like in those hours, between those hours. <laughs> but you're totally right. It's a, st- it's a ship that needs to be steered, isn't it? So, so tell me more about the farm because it, it sounds absolutely captivating. Yeah. So Kasai Family Farms, like Havsad Hako, has had its own like many chapters. It started as just three acres just a market style farm, which means we were just growing all the vegetables and we had a CSA box and we did three farmers markets a week. Um, So I think at its height, it had about 140, 150 CSA members, including some of the volunteers. So that's feeding a lot of humans on a small acreage. And it was on leased land outside of Bend, Oregon, which is kind of our closest city hub. And it was like that for many years. And Chris was just learning how to become a farmer. That model is super labor intensive. It's very low margin. Um, It's all perishables. And it's actually, it's where a lot of people get started in farming. It's a great introduction. And, but it was in 2015, he got his first wholesale contract to grow French fried potatoes for Deschutes Brewery. Oh, wow. So... We started um, learning how to grow potatoes at scale. And that was really like the impetus for the farm to start scaling up. By 2017, we were spread across like six different leases all over the place because Bend is one of those places where land has fractured quite a lot. So you can't find large farm acreage near the city. And it was just too chaotic. And we knew we needed to move somewhere with more farmland. So we moved our farm in 2017 to Madras, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And that's where our new farm is. So... The model has changed a lot, though, um, and this is like, you know, a rabbit hole. I won't go down completely, but um, water politics in the West is shaping farming in the West. I mean, it'll shape all of our lives. You know, like you're there in Los Angeles. Technically, L.A. exists because of the Colorado River, right? (laughs) Um, So our lives on land have been hugely shaped by water politics in the West, whereas if we had continued without any restrictions on water, We'd be growing, you know, 60 acres of potatoes right now, and we'd be this vegetable farm, probably doing the same thing we were doing, but bigger. Instead, we've lost 80% of our irrigation waters in five years. And oh my I, God. 
I just use the analogy, like that's like any other business losing 80% of its operating capital. So how do you survive? You know, great creativity um, and massive pivots. So our farm now, its current iteration, which is more of a holistic grazing model where we're grazing cattle, we grow grain so that we feed, we're actually raising all of the pigs that we raise on grains that we grow. This sort of model has evolved in response to the, the water changes here. So, so that's our model now. Uh, primarily, our business is based on selling of meats. So we ship our meats to people. Uh, we have a home delivery service to residents in Bend, Oregon. We sell some hay. We sell a little bit of grain. But primarily, it's our, it's our meat business that props up our farm these days. So, And that's only available to the people in, in, in the area, as you just said? Well, actually, we ship our meats. So we've been shipping our meats all over the nation you know, so yeah, if you're listening to this and you live anywhere in the United States, we do ship. Um, My dream is that in the next two years, we will replace all of our shipping with just home delivery in the area. That's, that's my dream. I think that's the way it should be. But in the meantime, you know, we're doing what we need to do to stay alive. And so that right now people are used to um, meats arriving at their doorstep. So we're servicing that through shipping. Okay, amazing. Uh, And I can put a link uh, in in the description to that particular service if anyone's interested. One thing um, I think is cool to mention, because I'm just like a nerd about this stuff and anybody (laughs) who's into like optimization, you know, right and health, most people who think about like health, it matters like what you eat eats, you know? So we actually sent our beef in for analysis by this group called the Bionutrient Food Association. And so they're taking testing of beef from all over, grain-fed versus grass-fed and regenerative models versus more conventional models. And they're kind of showcasing how the nutrient density of foods is, is largely dependent on the practices. So we got some information from the Bionutrient Food Association, which will just knock your socks off when you see truly how different it is. Um, wow. Like the inflammatory markers that exist in meats that are grain finished versus, you know, the kind of more proper omega-3 to omega-6 levels in a grass finished beef. Right. That's the sort of stuff that we nerd out on, right? Like we're not trying to do like highest volume and we're certainly not trying to be the cheapest. We're trying to produce the highest of quality. It's kind of all my businesses, really. I mean, absolutely. I mean, ideal in an ideal world, as it should be, right? But uh, we've, as we've already touched on, you know, this whole fast fashion thing—it's the aesthetics there, but the supply chain sucks, and it yeah. seems like you can't really have one and the other. You know, you have to, <laughs> you know, quantity, quantity, and quality—the question always, right? I'd rather invest in. Um, and it's kind of what like Havstead Hat Company's models, like the antith- antithesis of like a truly capitalist model, because honestly, I want my customers to have at most like three of my hats. Like, <laughs> you know, you've got your work hat, you've got your town hat, and then you've got your one. So like, you know, when you need to send the others in, you have a stand in. Yeah. But like, you shouldn't really need more than that. These should last, last you beyond a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, don't just buy a shitty wool hat, let it break down, and then it just goes into the trash and you buy a new one next season. Like, get something that can like last forever and get it repaired. That is my design ethos, for sure. I love that. There's a... Oh God, I sound, I'm going to sound like such a bro, such a bro Rogan right now. But there's this great... <laughs> there's, a, there's this great uh, speech in Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk, and, and it's about the idea of... Just how, how, you know, this is how, this is the idea. You'll wear leather clothes that will last you the rest of your life. You know, we, we don't, we, we buy things to just keep going forever. We don't just buy things to, 
sustain a trend, to add to our status or whatever else. I, I think it's, there's something really important about that, you know, finding the outfit, finding the thing that you mm. can wear and keeping it small. It, it's, it's, a, it's a gorgeous idea. So, so, so Habstat Hat Company. Now, I first came across you, your brand, through Ship John. He, uh, I think you guys must have done a collab, I'm going to say like two years ago, maybe, yeah. possibly three yeah, well, I've made Mike a couple of hats, and then I did a collab with an artist, Jim Krantz, and we did, like, a little preview party of that at Mike's place. Ooh, I don't know when that was. It was definitely more than two years ago because it was definitely before COVID. Yeah, Mike is awesome. I mean, I yeah. met Mike when he was Tomahawk, and he was based in his little shop in the other – I forget what part of – oh, this was the collab you're talking about. He did some hat bands for – so I built hats for – God, um, shovels and rope, Carrie Ann and her husband, Mike. And right. so he did some hat bands for the hats that I built from them for them. Right. right. Uh, and Mike has just been like, yeah, just awesome, like supporter, cheerleader, like, and also just like somebody I really love to look up to. I think his model at Ship John, how he stayed true to himself, the way he's built such like an authentic community around his brand is very aspirational for me it's it's incredible you're, you're absolutely right I, I talked to Mike in season one of the podcast and one thing I kind of I didn't know if it was poor taste to bring it up but obviously he had this someone he was attacked obviously you know I'm sure everyone knows in the community he was attacked someone attacked him with an axe um, outside of his shop and we didn't really touch on it in the episode but just what a guy you know like embraces yeah. family embraces sustainable clothing everything he, they design it in, in store it's just epic amazing yeah yeah, he's built something really, truly special. I mean, um, he's doing all of his manufacturing domestically. And yeah, he I think he just got through the, the five-year anniversary, actually, of, of like that attack. And it could have gone a totally different way. And so, yeah, the world is very happy that, that Mike yeah. is here. And yeah. um, I think he's building like a beautiful model for people to look at that, like, you know, again, conscientious consumerism and high quality. And I, to me, he, he um, embodies like style, like fashion right to me has a different meaning than style and i think that ship john has like such um impeccable style yeah agreed agreed because the fact because the, the style the aesthetic doesn't really change and everything is worn and everything just looks like he lives in it and mm -hmm. yeah you're totally right I, what was I, I'm, I'm terrible with names i don't know what's happening maybe i hit 38 and i'm my memory's going but <laughs> do you, i don't know if you ever across like kind of high fashion but they did a documentary about this guy i want to say his name was bill something but he just rode this bicycle around new york he wore like a blue chalk coat and he just yeah. took photos of it i don't know if you remember if anyone remembers then just message me or maybe I'll, I'll find it after the conversation but someone was i think it was like anna winter went up to him and was like you're the most stylish person here don't let anyone don't tell you anything <laughs> different because he wears the same thing every day <laughs> but yeah something sweet um, about that yeah so, yeah so i read somewhere that you had the hats that you adored and your dog chewed it up, and that was how the company started. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. So, <laughs> it's like so. too, too classic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me about this original hat, this original yeah. hat that you bought that you loved. You know, sometimes you're given these things that become like talismans in your life. Like, and this was just one of them. So it was when I was in college and I was just kind of free floating my way through, like checking some boxes, uh, <laughs> but not really feeling like what, you know, I was kind of always asking my dad, like, what am I doing here? And he'd just be like, you're learning to learn, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a good answer from a father. Mm -hmm. Um 
But um, I had a friend, his name is Willie T. Taylor, and he's a fantastic songwriter from Central California. Uh, Honestly, like a group of friends had just honestly picked him up at a bar one night after one of his shows and brought him (laughs) back to our house. And uh, we just like got to know each other. And he had this idea to create a music documentary um, inspired by this film some people maybe have seen called Heartworn Highways. And it was just about um, songwriters like Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark and that era of songwriters. Um, and it was a lot of like about how the magic often happens in those like late night, early morning sessions, sitting around a kitchen table at your buddy's house, just swapping stories and swapping songs. And like that's where the true magic lies. And so he wanted to film a music documentary that would be sort of a a modern day kind of look at his group of songwriter friends in those moments. And he sort of approached me and was just like, I think you should go on the road with us and help me film this. (laughs) (laughs) And um, but like his sentiment to me was like, you know, uh, there's inspiration for you to find on the road. And I think you should go looking like it's not you're not a musician, but like you need to start looking for the thing that sets you on fire. <laughs> so he gave me this hat. He called it my movie making hat. And it was a very convincing gift. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that, that was the sentiment behind that hat. And so I wore that hat and it did take me on like a journey of searching for a while. And it was there in my early twenties. And I found my way into Vancouver, British Columbia And I had met this group of artists who were there in Vancouver, and I just decided I'm going to plot myself here for a while because there's something here. But I was illegally working. I was working, like, three different jobs. I had, like, picked blueberries. I worked at a food truck. Um, I did, like, whatever to just sort of, like, make some rent and be in Vancouver. Right. (laughs) And um, it was getting near the end of that time. Like, it was clearly time to go, but I was just kind of resisting. And I came home from one of my jobs and my dog, who had been alone with that hat many times on our travels, she chewed it up. And I just took it as the sign that, like, it's not working. It's time to go home. <laughs> <laughs> so Charlie, um, she she was a little bit of a, a teacher in her own right. So, wow. so yeah, I, I packed up my bags. I think I left, like, two days later and made my way back to California And then it was that hat that I was like, I really need to get this fixed and what is next in life and all the things. And I found a hat maker here in Central Oregon. Um, And at the same time, I had found a job working as a wrangler and a trail guide for a stable. So I took that job and I worked for the barn in the mornings. And then I found this hat maker who just sort of like uh, let me start shadowing him and apprenticing him um, in the afternoons. And then, you know, again, I, I just stumbled into that. It was an enjoyable and tangible trade. And um, people started saying, hey, will you make me a hat? And then that, you know, that turned into Habset Hat Company. I mean, I've seen your workshop. I, I think you can call it a workshop slash showroom. It's beautiful. It's just like so simple and clean. It's a, it looks like a beauty. I'd love to, to visit it one day. Who knows what the, what the future holds. So you make a, a vast array of hats. I mean, all of them just gorgeous. Something to suit every taste. Thank you. I mean, what's the process of, of making a hat for someone? What, is, wh- what are the steps? That where, do, where do you begin? It starts, you know, with a conversation with the customer. So everything I do is custom and made to order. So <laughs> first things first, I make sure they know that I'm not fast. Um, and it's like my tagline is like worth the wait. So it is a conversation, you know, what are you looking for? Color, style, 
um, just general aesthetics. Are you wearing this hiking? Are you wearing this hunting? Are you wearing this um, as a fashion piece? Is this, you know, going to be on stage with you for a big performance? Those sorts of things. Like, what is, how do you intend to wear this? And then I send to customers. If they come here, obviously I can fit people in person. And I used to do a lot of events where I traveled around and did in-person fittings. I'm not traveling as much with it these days. But um, I have a process to send a, a custom head measurement kit in the mail. You know, everyone has a really unique head shape, so it's not just size like seven and a quarter or seven and an eighth. This is fitted to your unique head shape. So I have this conformature tool that conforms to the shape of your heads and people will do that on themselves and then they send that information back to me and then that begins the process of let's build this hat. Yeah, and I've got a couple of different felt suppliers that I've worked with over the years. One is United States based and then a newer one is in Portugal. And, you know, making a really fine hat. I only work with 100% beaver fur these days because it is the beyond a lifetime quality. Again, like I, I want you to wear this. I want you to wear this hard. I want this to like, you know, uh, live up to all of the elements. You're going to wear it in the snow and the rain and the sun. And then you're going to send it back to me to be reshaped and cleaned and sent back to you. So these are investment pieces for sure. That's just incredible. I mean, if you, I mean, what, what are the, the I, I'm not a particularly, I'm not really, I, 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 if anyone's listening, I'm wearing a, a, just a little kind of awful beanie right now, <laughs> like a watch cap thing. I'm not really a hat guy, but if you were kind of new to, to hats, what would be a good, like a couple of styles to kind of consider before you reached out? Yeah, like I have a couple, like I, I always say, you know, people who are like, I'm not a hat person. It's like, you just haven't found your hat yet. Right. So I would say like, um, I have a style called um, the Organ Outlaw that I find a lot of people, it's very neutral for men and for women, not too Western, but it's certainly not a fedora. There's another one called the Organ Explorer, which is a little bit more... Mm, I don't want to go like full on man from Snowy River, but a little bit more of that vibe. Right. Um, like I would love to be a fisherman, you know, like that's, you know, the kind of style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I find like those are the kind of two most easy to wear, I would say. And then there's a difference between there's kind of three weights of felt. There's a Western weight, which is an eight ounce and it's a very rigid and stiff felt. There's a six ounce, which is sort of this mid weight. And then there's a four ounce, which is kind of your dress weight, small brim, more flexible of a felt. So some people feel more comfortable to get started with a softer felt and a smaller brim before they jump into like a rigid big brim. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. These days, I'm seeing a lot of people go for the Western styles, no matter what their walk of life. And Just I love leaning to build. In. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the like what this year's like theme is like coastal cowgirl and Yellowstone <laughs> is like everybody's like oh, yeah. aspirational vibe. So. But honestly, like I'll say, I've because I've been building Range Revolution for the past two years, I have cooled production for Havstad hugely. So I'm still taking a few orders here and there primarily for past customers or I'm doing reworks. But I've actually been looking at, there's a really talented hat maker who I would like to bring into my shop. I've never really considered that until mm. her. And I'm sort of looking at bringing a second maker into this shop wow. so that I can pick orders back up and mm. still continue to build range revolution. You know, the, the thing about being creative and ambitious is like, <laughs> Um, you have to be smart about how much you overextend. So Habstad, I look at as my forever, ever company. Like mm -hmm. I want to be 80 years old in this shop and I want to love it forever. 
I explored what it would look like to turn this into full-on production and have multiple people working in the shop production style. And I very conscientiously have kept this company very small, very custom. At the height of production, I was making 150 hats a year, which yeah. as you know, a single person with maybe an assistant, it felt like a lot. But in the scheme yeah. of a production company, it's really small. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's Havstad. Wow. So that's roughly... Th- Maybe I'm not hopeful I'm exposing myself to be a moron. That's like three a week, roughly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, three to four a week. Um, you know, uh, I was That's trying to... Well, I was, I was actually condensing it because of my life in farming. So yeah. really, I was in production mode for about six, seven months out of the year. And so oh I was really gosh. trying to do like five, six a week, um, which is totally doable. But it was pretty hardcore. And that was pre-baby, I'll say, too. Like, now I have different priorities. Like, I want time with my son. You know, I don't just want to work. So life's chapters, you know, like, your trade is always your trade. And and then you just have to choose, like, what businesses are the ones that you want to scale and make sense to scale? And then, like, what are the businesses that benefit by actually staying small, staying niche, and having a really unique clientele, which I've built? Well, speaking of the clientele, I don't want to do too many kind of name drops here, but am I right in saying that you made a hat for Shania Twain? Oh, yeah. Queen Queen Shania. (laughs) Smart girl. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, like, as a young girl of the 90s who was, like, (laughs) girl power, like, country queen, um, Shania was an all-time. Oh, my goodness. And they approached me about it, and they actually, they asked us to fly to Las Vegas, and I got to hand-deliver it and, like, hang out with with all Shania so I really I, pe- I peaked yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually amazing to me I mean she was always amazing wasn't she but it, it was actually incredible to see the, the pop stars today like Adele for example I think Shania was at her concert and she didn't realize she was like oh my god Shania like she just lost it you know so someone cool. someone sent me a photo this was the funniest I got a photo from somebody who had taken a screenshot that was Adele had posted the photo realizing that Shania was at her concert yeah, yeah, and yeah. my friend sends me this picture and is like is Shania wearing your hat, your hat? in this photo Definitely. that Adele it was just one of these like meta moments where I was like oh my god I just live my like little life in Madras Oregon but yeah, I have gotten yeah. to make hats for like really cool people like Jillian Welsh who's one of my yeah. musical heroes I got to build her a hat and just form a relationship with her Willie Watson, you know, formerly um, Old Crow Medicine Show, but very much his own, like, solo genius these days. Yeah. yeah, just really cool artists. And then I've been hosting hat workshops, which I'm still doing. And so people actually fly from all over the world to come build custom hats in the shop with me here in, in Central Oregon. Amazing. So I get to meet really awesome people who are doing really awesome work. And you kind of bond through this creative process over two days of working with your hands together. So I really love those. I mean, when you think about scaling a business, what are the things that come to mind? What are the intentions? Are we, are we thinking, is it all of the above uh, profit? Let's say legacy. Like what, what, when you think of, when you personally think about scaling a business, what do you think of? I think about impact. Ah, that's the first thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it makes so much sense with you. Yeah. Yeah, like, I just feel like, like, our time on earth is finite, right? So it's, for me, it's not legacy. Like, it's, you know, like, or maybe I just don't have a correct grip or understanding on what I even really think of that word legacy. But <laughs> like, right, I like think I think about impact. And I just feel like, you know, if you're lucky, maybe we've got 85 really powerful, healthy years on earth, I hope more. But 
it took me however many, where am I now? I'm 33 years in. So like, so like <laughs> the choices that I make now, right? Like that sets up the next several decades of my working life. And I really want to focus it on impact because I just want to leave things better. And I, I hope that's not a naive thing. I think that the power of people is often underestimated when we think about ourselves as individuals. But like when there's like collective conscience to try and do good and make impact, powerful, powerful things have happened through history. And, you know, some days if I get too lost in the the daily problem solving and of whatever of these businesses, like it can feel small but there's something that I'm trying to do through design and it's it's design of product it's design of a life but it's it's design of like how do we build businesses and make choices as designers that might truly change things for the better because mm. you know to bring this back to the fashion industry I mean I'm working so heavily in agriculture but agriculture and fashion are so intertwined people often don't think about it right like who grows the cotton um, you know whose waters are impacted by the dye processes like you know like who makes our clothes and what are their lives like there's something I'm trying to do with design that I hope inspires other designers to stop before we build anything new before we build any any new company or any new product can we first start by asking ourselves like does this actually get us closer to the world that we want or not the world doesn't need any new shit (laughs) (laughs) we really don't like you know like you know but but i think that there is a place for beauty and there's a place for story and honestly as a designer i think there's nothing more exciting than actually working within constraints right? If you have all the fabrics to choose from, and if you have, like, you know, all the things you could build, like, I don't know, that to me is kind of boring. Like, I know that creativity thrives within constraints. And so can the constraint be sustainable materials? And can it be regenerative outcomes for the land, for the people who manage land, and the people who make the garments? then you got to get creative because the system is not set up for that. Damn, you're making me rethink my whole life, Kate. I love it. (laughs) Good. Uh, Well, I rethink it like, you know, weekly too. So, (laughs) Or at least expose what's dormant anyway, at least uh, because I'm agreeing with everything you say. And it's so easy to just get lost in the, in the, the rat race, isn't it? You know, oh, just yeah. the day in, day out. No, me too. I mean, right? Like you're just trying to keep your kid fed. You're just trying to like keep laundry going and you're trying to like keep your marriage happy. And like, <laughs> you know, like we all have like the normal things we're trying to keep up with. But, um, you know, um, yeah, it's true. Like our, our choices in the work that we do, where we place our energy, how we tell story, like it really can inspire the next generation of designers, the next generation of business builders um, to just maybe think more holistically. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my life on the farm has been the education to help me think this way as a designer, because I wasn't thinking this way in 2014 and 2015 with <laughs> Habstad. I was just going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I was having fun. I was just making things and trying to build this business. But um, I'm an empathetic person. I see, you know, what's happening to landscapes. And and I care deeply about seeing um, agriculture and agriculturalists get better. Like, not to 
bring a downer into it, but I, I do want to reference this statistic because, like, again, whether it's the people growing our cotton or, or, like, whatever might go into our fashion supply chain, since your show is so design-focused, worldwide, farmers have the highest suicide rate of any demographic. Is that so? Yeah, more than veterans. And I won't go too deep into this rabbit hole, but like, right, like we've had like huge revolutions in history, like, like Gandhi's resistance started with the spinning wheel, right? Like, like, like the, the control of cotton and the control of fibers, the, the global fashion supply chain is such a behemoth of an economic driver. I think the statistic is like one in six human beings is connected to the fashion or textile industry, right? So... Really, like in addition to, you know, are we burning, you know, clean energy, you know, we have to, the fashion industry has a massive economic and environmental impact in the world. And so I just hope in our generation, and it is happening, it's just painfully slow. I don't know if it's going to happen with the big incumbents in power because they're so owned by the shareholders. But a lot of the companies who you interview, like they are privately held businesses that get to make decisions for themselves and they're really creative people. Like like they're designing and they have the opportunity to design for change. We can't really wait for the big corporations to like make the right decision because they'll always be profit driven. But I would love to see our, our industry just think more wholly about the lives of humans and, and the ecosystems that we touch. So I feel like I'm being so preachy. I am so sorry if this just sounds like... I don't think it sounds preachy. Take it from me. It doesn't sound preachy. I think it's something that we have to be reminded of. And we have to hear this. And, and I'm actually really grateful that you you have the audacity to actually even say it on a podcast. And, and I'm grateful for that. So Got no time you. to waste. You know, some people are like, <laughs> I was at a, a conference in Denver last week and I said some things on stage that were just straight truth. Right. And I came off the stage and somebody was like, wow, you are so honest. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, what did I say? Did I black out and say something really honest? But it's, it's, it's really cool to, to talk to someone who's obviously incredibly creative, incredibly empathic, but also has a you're, you're clearly type A to actually have the drive to do something about, you know, these, these itches that you've got to scratch. It's, it's, it's a rare thing. And it's, it's, it's you know, it's great to be around it, you know. And so I'm, I'm grateful to be able to, to, to talk to you and, uh, and hopefully share this message with everyone. Well, I just I, I've listened to a few of the episodes and, you know, Ironheart is just like, you know, what a sexy brand and what like a, a thing they've done over time. And, you know, I spent 10 years building Hefset Hat Company. I, I know exactly what that company is in my heart. Range Revolution, you know, I'm two years into this thing. And this is the this is the company that I will build to scale for impact. Right. And it's a totally different mindset about growing this business. So I look at companies like Ironheart and, and I think about how you build a brand that has such a unique customer loyalty because that, that's how we're going to get this message across. You know, um, I don't just want to build like handbags, right? You know, <laughs> um, we're building stuff for men and for women. But like I, I look at these companies and, and there's something more when you choose this piece, when you buy an Ironheart piece, when you buy something from Indigo Farrah, when you buy something from Ship John, mm-hmm. like, right, like you say, I vote for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so... I hope that Range Revolution in 10 years, you know, I might be able to look back and be like, I I made some good choices. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and it looks just so great. So, So for everyone listening, 
I'm going to put the link to Range Revolution, to Haverstad Hat Company, and also to your to to, to the meat um, production service. You know, whatever. I'm sorry, it's probably a better term for it, but I'll put links in the description to everything that you're doing, so everyone can have a look and see how great it is, and essentially see the message and 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 uh, hopefully, you know, partake in it. Yeah, Range is like officially launching. Our new website is launching in November. So I don't know when this will air, but we'll have our e-commerce website up in November with the full collection. Um, We have a really exciting uh, brand collaboration launching for the holidays that can't wait to tell you about. But you know, we're, we're really into doing collabs. So if there are any brands or people out there who are like, yo, I want to build something in leather that like wants to do some good, like hit us up. Like we're, we're building co-branded stuff. Um, we do corporate gifting and then just a couple resources I want to share. So like if somebody is listening to this and they're designing, they're like, I don't even know where to start. Right. Like I have this one person I source my flannel from, like, I don't know where to start. There's a really incredible trade show in London called the Future Fabrics Expo. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens in the summer, and um, Nina, who started it, has an organization called the Sustainable Angle. And this trade show, Future Fabrics Expo, um, it is just like this massive example of like all the different textiles that are at your disposable right now, ready for market at scale. And so like you don't have to wonder where am I going to go source these things. Just go to Future Fabrics Expo and literally you can, you know, you can touch all the swatches, talk to the makers. Um, and honestly, you can find your entire collections worth of textiles at that show. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's an incredible resource. I wonder if that's the one they have in, in Angel in Islington. I wonder if it's there, but I, I could be wrong. They actually, I should add that they're actually doing their first New York showcase. I think it's coming up in November. So if you're in the States, um, they're going to have a Future Fabrics Expo showcase in New York this November. And I can't recommend that enough. It's such a wealth of resources. Okay, amazing. So, so, so a, a bunch of links are going to go in the description to some incredible resources here. Okay, it, it's been so good talking to you. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. What's the best way for everyone to keep in touch with what you're up to and everything else? You know, I've, I've got an intermittent presence on Instagram. So you can find <laughs> me at Range Revolution and at Havstead Hatco and at Cassad Family Farms, kind of depending on what you want to check out. I write about some business stuff on LinkedIn. I've been using that for like, you know, business networking. And then there's contact forms on all my websites. So if you want to talk about anything in particular, like, please reach out. Well, as I say, so, so good to talk to you. I think this one's going to go out in around, it's either end of November or December. But uh, yeah, I can't wait for everyone to hear it. And uh, yeah, let's get you in for another one. I've got so much more to talk to you about, I feel. Well, I want (laughs) to ask you about your winding career too and how you ended up in LA and everything that you've got going on. So, and then open invitation. Like, it sounds like you need to come see both Mike and I up here in Oregon. So hell yeah. yeah. And and one of my dearest friends, Chris Warren at Wesco, I need to see him. So yeah, so uh, an Oregon trip is definitely on the cards. Cool, I'll look forward to it. And I'll let you know, next time I'm in L.A., we're doing some manufacturing for range in L.A. So um, next time I'm down there, I'll, I'll make sure and look you up. You've been listening to Ironcast, the official Ironheart International podcast. A big thank you to Kate Havstad. Ironcast is an island-to-island production in association with High Kick Media, hosted and edited by me, Ollie Walker. We hope you enjoyed listening, and we look forward to dropping episode 10, the final episode, very soon. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Take care.